All right, week two in our study in First uh, Corinthians. It's a uh, it's a great book of the Bible, but the church in Corinth is in a in, in a chaotic time. The culture they live in is raging on fire, not literally, but uh, just in every way, kind of like our country and our culture we find ourselves in. There's a, the church is asking a lot of questions, literally asking questions from gender, sexuality, to uh, do I eat food, sacrifice that to the idols at the temple. They're asking questions. They're getting drunk at communion. Uh, it's, it's a wild church. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to them. There's about uh, 50 to 80 people in this, this young, small, growing church at the time he's writing to them. They have a lot of questions about how to apply their faith. Uh, many of them first-generation Christians, young urban, uh, progressive folks, and so uh, Jesus saved them. Just like you and I, Jesus saved them, and when he, they, they saved, he, Jesus saved them, he now uh, adopted them, and now he's conforming them into, the ima- into his image. And so they are, uh, in many ways, seeking to conform themselves to the, the ways of the world, and so they're doing things that, uh, that, that they ought not to be doing, and they don't know what's up and down. So Paul's writing this letter to them uh, to, to, to encourage them, but also to answer some questions. Um, and so as we, as we study this book, you, you might find yourself disagreeing with uh, God in the Bible. And if that's you, that's okay. We all are there at some point in time. Uh, but when you get to that point, you have two options. You can either submit to God because he's God or act like you are God. So it's always the question you have to ask yourself. When you find something in the scriptures that you disagree with, the question is, who is the highest authority? And that's how Paul opened up the book last week. That's the ma- most important thing that we have to see as we read it. Who's the highest authority? Is it you or is it God? It's God. That's the answer. But we, we oftentimes live our lives as if we are. And so that's the conflict that we might find ourselves in. And so we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be going through verse 10 through 17. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands. One of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. Um, and so take it, keep it, read it. Um, it's yours. If you need more to give to more people, come back. We love giving away God's word. And so we believe uh, that it is about Jesus. We do believe that it's the power to save and transform. And so that's why we're in it. And so here we go. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul's going to make an appeal for unity. That's the first thing I want us to see today, is that Paul is making an appeal to unity. He's writing the, to this church. They're divided, or else why would he appeal to them? To be unified, because uh, they're, they're divided. Think about this, a church of 50 to, to 80 people, and they're already divided. We're going to find out in a moment, they have Team Jesus shirts, they have Team Paul shirts, they have Team Apollo shirts, they, they have Peter shirts, they have, they have their teams. And it's like 50 to 80 people in, in a room, and they all have different teams. They're, they're, they're divided. And he's appealing to them to be unified. And so Paul loves this church. He loves them dearly. He planted this church. We saw that in Acts 18, that when he established the church uh, there. And, and, and quickly, you know, as he planted the church, the culture around him, they didn't like that. And so he, he's been in hot water uh, uh, ever since he planted this church. And so he wants to help them. And so he's appealing to them. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. This is brothers, sisters. This is Christians in the church. I appeal to you, church members, is what he's saying. He's, he's pleading with them. And the name, this, is, this is how strong his, his plea is, and he's appealing to them by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's like, I'm writing to you because I love Jesus. I'm writing to you because you love Jesus. I'm writing to you because you say you love Jesus, and we all agree, at least we've said we, we, we worship him. And so if that's true, you love, know, love, and worship Jesus, church, I'm writing you these things because they're about Jesus. And I, I want you to do what Jesus told us to do in, in John 17. 
If anyone remember Jesus prayed before he died, that we'd be one, as he and the Father are one, that we'd be unified. And this is how he explains it, the Apostle Paul, to this particular church, to us here today. All of you, he appeals that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you would be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. See, he wants unity. In our day, that word, and and I almost use a different word. Because I just was like, man, unity, what do people mean by that when they say that? Have you ever, you, you hear people talk about, like, we're unified. Everyone has a different definition of unity. Every single person does. In our world, the, that, that word unity, uh, or uni, unity is, has been massively marred. It's been torn apart. It means different things in different contexts. It's been misconstrued. It's been uh, watered down. It's kind of like the word tolerance. The word tolerance used to mean that we can agree to disagree and therefore tolerate being in the same uh, room with one another. But now tolerance means that you must affirm everything that, that the other person believes or stands for. You must honor. You must celebrate things. Things that you don't want to celebrate, you got to. You got to affirm those things, or you're labeled narrow-minded bigot. Uh, you know that's real tolerant of everyone. Like that's what we'd say, and that's how we view unity too. Like if we're unity, we're tolerant, we're diverse. Blah blah blah. Like that's not what unity is. Unity is saying we agree on certain principles, certain things, and we're going to rally behind those things. Like the Cowboys, I know none of you are Cowboys. We have like two, none of y'all like football, and that's fine, whatever. There's a sport called football, and, you know, they're in the playoffs right now, and so some of you are like maybe watching on your phone. Like, not yet. But uh, this just, the people who have their team, they're unified behind their team. They're unified. I mean, you talk to an Aggie fan or a, 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 a Cowboys fan, and they may disagree on most things in life, but their teams, they're unified. Man, we, they, they will go to bat for one another. Like Aggies, I think, give deals to people like in jobs. To Aggies, because they love them. You're like, is that true? Find one. And, and if you're not one, you don't know. You're not in. You're not, in, you're not part of the team. Unity there. Behind one, one a particular thing. So, so what, there's something that must unite us. And Paul's saying that I want you to be united. And I want you to agree. Meaning that you disagree right now, and you've got to agree on some things. And they're going to be in the things you're going to agree about are things that you think about and the way you make judgments. He's going to spend the rest of this book talking about a lot of things that they should agree upon. And I'll just go ahead and cut to the chase. What Paul's main point is you've got to agree with what God says, what the Bible says. That's what his point is. You must agree with God. I don't care what your, your political party is. I don't care what your, your sports team is. I don't care what any of those things are. Paul is saying, I want you to agree on Jesus. I want you to agree on Jesus. That's what we're going to rally behind. That's what we're going to be united behind. And so some people in our world, in their world, and then in our world today, we say, well, we're for Jesus. We're all for Jesus, but why are we divided? Well, there's things about Jesus that we must believe in order to stay united. There are open-handed things that we can disagree on, but there's closed-handed things that we must agree on. Closed-handed things mean, like, uh, the open-handed things that we can uh, agree to disagree on, and we can, be, we can have convictions about, and we can disagree strongly, but we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. Closed-handed issues begin to take you away if you disagree on those uh, based on what God says they are. You start disagreeing with God on closed-handed issues. You start becoming what is known as not a Christian anymore. And, and we don't like that in our world. We don't like that. 
We don't want to be called, we don't, we don't, oh, oh, unity, see that the text says unity. No, Paul, the writer of this book, has gone toe-to-toe with heretics. We've seen that in 1 Corinthians. We see it in Galatians where Paul actually opposes one of the other apostles, Peter. Paul is not afraid to contend for what he calls sound doctrine, which is right, healthy thinking according to God's word. And so Paul wants them to be united. But he's not looking, he wants unity. He's not looking for uniformity. He's not looking for everyone to say the same things. Like, you know how it is. You, you, go, on, you, you go online and you watch multiple news outlets. You're like, they're literally quoting one another. Like, they have talking points. They're rallying behind these talking points. And so Christianity is not about talking points. I need you to understand this. Some of you think that if I could just know all the right ways to talk about my faith, then, then somehow I'll be a good spokesman for Jesus. No, love Jesus. He'll make you a good spokesman. What if I say the wrong things? Well, guess what? You're human. He forgives humans. He loves humans. Humans say the wrong things sometimes. Sometimes you can say all the right things all the time and your heart be far from Jesus. He doesn't want that. That doesn't mean we don't try. It doesn't mean we don't learn. It doesn't mean we don't study. But but we're, we're not seeking uniformity where we all just say the same things. That's a cult, by the way. That's what it is. Like, hey, well, what's going on? Well, What's the talking point here? Like, you know, you ever had the Jehovah's Witness come? I mean, yes, that's a cult, by the way. They come to your door, the Mormon, they come to your door, and they, they have their talking points. They, they know what they're saying. You're like, man, what if Christians just did that? Well, what if Christians just loved Jesus? That's where Paul's at right now with the Corinthians. So unity around Jesus, agreeing on Jesus and his word that's what creates true diversity. That's what the Bible is, Jesus' word. And so this is what creates true, true, true diversity. It's welcoming of all people, even enemies of God. God goes after them. The Bible teaches us that Jesus seeks after those who are not, uh, the, the, those who had gone astray, those who were, quote, lost, those who were, quote, rebellious, those who were, quote, enemies. He sought to make friends. That's the gospel. That's what we believe. That's what unifies us. The gospel spreads so far and wide that it reaches different cultures, all cultures, all backgrounds, all nations, all tongues. And so there's a unity that's centered around the person and work of Jesus. That's where the unity is. It's not your activism group. It's not your, your, your political party. It's not anything else. If you are united on anything, we must be united on Jesus and his word. Now, can you be a part of, you know, activism, whatever, sure. But when your activism trumps the God of the Bible, your activism is wrong. In our day and age, we're so, we're so excited. And the reason is, is because different groups will pop up and they'll gain social status and social steam. And we want to join the team that looks like they're winning. That's what the Corinthians are doing. That's why they're going to pick Team Paul, Team Apollos. They're going to pick different teams. We're going to, we're going to read it here in a moment. They're going to join the political groups. They're going to join the teams. They want, to, they want to be on the right side of things. They want to be on the team that looks like they're winning. And that's natural. We all want to be on the team that looks like we're winning. And sometimes it looks like Jesus' team is losing, especially when people are getting killed like they were. Like, man, like, seems like Jesus is not growing his church, but he is, you know, cutting some numbers. Well, quickly after the martyrs died, there began what we call as the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. 
that after people begin to stand for their faith, die for their King Jesus, the gospel began to multiply in ways that, that we, we, you had not seen prior. See, Jesus is building his church. And so on Christmas, we look at Jesus as king. Jesus is king. He's king no matter what it looks like in your church, in your area, at your day and age. But he's always increasing his church. It's never decreasing. The church of Jesus Christ historically has never decreased. It has only, always, and will forever increase. Period. Look at church history. Look at history. It is 100% true. Jesus said it would be, and it, and it has been. Now, it looks different in certain parts of the world, start to experience massive growth and expansion and gospel progress, while some experience progress, and then you see some, uh, some persecution or some deviate, and when church, the church deviates from God's word, well, in ways, there becomes judgment and punishment, and, and, and there needs to be some cleansing. But I'm telling you, when you look at the church worldwide, Jesus' church has never slowed down. It's continued to grow and always will. And so Paul's appealing to them, let, I don't, y'all need, this is a local church in Corinth. So what you think? Our church, don't be divided. May there be no divisions among you. Literally, think the same things about Jesus and his word. And see, this is what makes us distinct from any social or political group. And so Paul is fiercely committed to Jesus and his word. And so the, the, some close-handed issues. I'm going to give you, the, the, there's more open-handed issues that we could talk about, but I really want to nail down the close-handed issues that without which you may, may you, you're, 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 you're on verge of not being a Christian and you must repent. If you disagree with God in these, this is, this is Christianity. This is what we believe. No matter your denomination, your background, what you believe on baptism, this is the true close-handed. We will go toe-to-toe and fight for these issues. These are, these are main issues. The first one is uh, God. Imagine that. Big deal. The Godhead, the, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, close-handed issue. That is one of the first heresies that entered the church, and the first fights they fought were over who God is. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God, eternally existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's who we worship. We worship one God, eternally existing in, in, as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person of the Trinity is fully God. Fully and equally God in an eternal relationship with one another. So we're, we're united, uh, the church ought to be united on, on who God is. On who God is. And this doesn't mean that we have to worship three gods. Or God manifests himself in, in three ways differently throughout various occasions, throughout time. We worship one God eternally existing in three persons. We see in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, we see that, number one, that it was that he created mankind in their image. In, in the image of God, we created them. We were created in the plurality, the, the trinity. We are created in their image. And you know who's unified? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are unified. So unity that we're even Paul's appealing to is centered on this idea that God is one. He's unified. He's unified. And so each member of the trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they act, they feel, they speak, they relate. And the way they do that is equally God and thus share all the divine attributes of God. That is a completely closed-handed issue. Now, it can be complex. I'm not asking you in order to be a Christian, you have to be able to recite that. Or even if you want to be a Christian, you know, you're not a Christian, you want to become a Christian, you got to remember all I said. I'm saying is that's what the Bible teaches. So we agree with that. We agree with it. 
Number two, close-handed issue, the Bible. There has got to be an authority. God has come to us. He didn't leave us on our, on our, on our own to figure out how to do life, how to do church, how to do whatever we do. He, he, he came to us. So the Bible teaches us, uh, and we believe this, that, that God has supremely revealed himself to fallen humanity. When Jesus Christ came, as Christmas we celebrate, he came, born of a virgin, he was incarnated. He, that means he put on skin and bones, the Son, Jesus Christ, came to earth. He, he, we believe that God came to us. We believe that Jesus is God's final word to humanity as the scriptures declare. The Bible reveals to us this incarnate word, Jesus Christ, the word of God. And so the, the, the Bible, Jesus, uh, the, the, the word of God, Jesus Christ, is, is God's final appeal to us. And so it, it's, it's, he's revealed himself in the flesh. God, the Holy Spirit, breathed out the words of, uh, through human writers, but wrote the Bible. The Bible is written by God, and it's about God. And Jesus says it's about Jesus, but specifically, Old and New Testament. So what we know about God comes from God revealing himself to mankind. We are his creation. And so we're asking God, how did you make the earth? How did you do it? Well, let me tell you. He tells us in Genesis. Now, he doesn't, he, tell, he doesn't tell us all the details and all the information we want to know all the time. He tells us, however, what we need to know, what we must know in order to, to, to have salvation, to have life, to believe in him. He tells us what we need to know about who he is, that we would trust him and obey him. He's revealed himself to us. We see that through the scriptures. The third close-handed issue is creation. And so this triune God, the God of the Bible, created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. God created out of nothing. That's what the scripture says. Everything in creation, therefore, is dependent on God. The breath you just breathed, God allowed you to breathe it. The, 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 the growth of, of a baby in a womb, God's, quote, the scriptures say, knitting together that child in their mother's womb. God is actively involved in creation. And he, he additionally, that creation established some things. So we believe in creation. God created, meaning the, the point of creation is everything is dependent on God. And so God, in establishing created order, he created Guess what? Gender and sex, male and female. That's number four. Close-handed issue. And this is where we're going to get into some stuff that might be offensive to the current culture we live in. And this is where some of the, 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 the rhetoric in our common, our, our, our common culture right now disagrees with God. And some of you might actually agree with the culture that you live in, and you've been taught by the culture you believe in. You may, you, you may be, have become a Christian out of that culture, and you're, hearing, you're going to hear some things about what God says about gender and sexuality that you're like, man, I don't know that I agree with. And that's, that's perfectly normal for someone who, who hasn't known God very long. Hasn't worshipped God very long. So this is one of those moments where you may disagree with God, but you got to agree with him. you got to agree with him. This is the appeal. Paul says you got to agree with him. And so, first thing is uh, male and female. Binary genders. Yep, that's how God made it. He made us in his own likeness, in his own image. Male and female, he created us. Equal in value. In dignity, in worth, but different in function. God created men and women are different. Imagine that. They're different. 
They're different. Meaning, gender is not a spectrum. Gender, it's real quiet. <laughs> gender is not a spectrum at all. It is. God, see, some, uh, you know, watch some documentaries and stuff, and like, well, you know, uh, I'm not the gender that the doctor assigned me at birth. Dude, you wish the doctor had that authority. Doctors have no authority over assigning your gender. God does. Here's this crazy part. Non-Christians in like rural parts of the world and pagan societies have been agreeing with God about male and female for generations and generations and centuries and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. The pagans have declared the glory of God and yet we have finally evolved to the point where we can disagree with God and we are right. God doesn't know male and female. He doesn't know the uniquenesses of the, the, the human experience because he's God. Yeah, he does. That's why he came, clothed himself as a man, was born of a virgin, through the womb of a woman, a woman, and then had a mother and father and lost his father somewhere along the way, eventually gets crucified and murdered on a cross in your place for your sin so you, he could understand the full effects of, 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 of sin and the depravity of man and understand injustice because he was unjustly murdered and executed. He can understand a, a, a culture and an environment that was, not ho- that, that was hostile to, to God in the Bible because they killed him. Not because he healed people, but it's because literally he told the Jews that he was God. And they said, no, there's, we're killing you. So when God set into motion gender, he, 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 he bound himself also to it as a, as a man when he was created. It's a close-handed issue. And I get it. It puts us at odds with the world. It does. We shouldn't be mean to other people. We shouldn't be uh, hostile to other people. But I need us to see here today that, that it's God who made the decision. And so we should be unified around this. It's amazing the church is being divided in our day among this issue. First time in history that this issue has caused division among Jesus' church. Gender. Closed-handed issue. Additionally, let's be clear, the Bible is clear about life beginning at conception. Another hot topic issue. The unborn baby in a baby in the mother's womb is one, a mother, two, a baby. It's a child. It's, it's a living being. This is why if you were to have a car wreck, uh, a woman who is pregnant, who got hit by a car, and, she, the, and the baby dies, double homicide. But not if she does it herself. Rights. Hypocrisy. Demonic. Evil. Evil. Protect the baby after the, the drunk driver hits it, but not from the mother who would want to take what God is knitting together in her womb. Now, we love to do a lot of ministry, especially for those who have had children out of wedlock or are in environments where, you know, it's not a very great situation, dad's not involved. You're like, man, you probably should have taken that baby because, you know, they have an awful life. Well, 
we believe that God redeems. God sets free. So we're going to do a lot of ministry to, to single moms, to teen moms. We're going to do a lot of ministry there because we believe that the, that the woman's life is, is, has value. So does the child. So we want to care deeply. But this is what the Word of God said, Psalm 51, Psalm 139, Isaiah 40, 41, Jeremiah 5, Luke 1, 15. These are close-handed issues where life begins. Close-handed issues. And so it has been said that Christians can be pro-choice. I just don't see it in the Scriptures. What's the choice? Who murders the baby? You're like, oh, but there's, different, there, there's other circumstances. I know. There was a time, though, in the scriptures where the government said you could, uh, you could kill the baby. After they were born, you know, Hebrew midwives were supposed to kill the babies because the government gave orders. And guess what they didn't do? Kill the babies. And God blessed them. And God gave them families because they honored God and not man. God took care of Moses. He was thrown into a basket and put in a river. There was no health care for him. He was in a river. God saw to it to preserve his life. And he became a prophet who spoke against the, the governing authorities that, would, that had enslaved his people. I need you to see that you are not God. God is God, and he's, he, he loves people. He loves them a lot. And they may be in awful environments. They, there may be awful situations, awful circumstances. And you might be someone who has had an abortion. You're, man, well, you know what? This guy's just saying all this stuff, and, and, and he's saying I murdered my child. I am, but I'm saying this too. God saves murderers. You're like, that sounds really harsh. Well, guess who wrote this book? The, the book of 1 Corinthians that we're reading. A murderer. The apostle Paul was a Christian killer. What was his job? He signed up. Hey, what can I do? Can I kill Christians? Let me, let me be that guy. I want that title. Murderer. Let me, let me do that. But only the Christians. Only the Christians. And he says later that God showed mercy on him so that you and I could know that no matter what sin you've committed, even something so egregious as murder, Past sin, present sin, future sin, all sins, Jesus Christ would take care of, and he has taken care of, by dying in your place for your sin. All of them. So Paul's like, I, God should not have shown mercy on me. I'm aware of how wicked I was, and I am in the, the, the core of my being. I was murdering Christians, but he saved me so that you could know, the whole world could know, that Jesus can save anyone. Doesn't matter your baggage. Doesn't matter your past. Doesn't matter your political leanings. Doesn't matter what you what you thought of growing up. Doesn't matter how much you've hated God. It doesn't matter how much you've rebelled against Him. It does not matter. Jesus is violently pursuing you, so violently that He took your place on a cross, being brutally executed and murdered. So that you would not experience the judgment and penalty due your sin. That he would experience it on your behalf. Like, well, I've, I've really messed up. And Jesus is like, I know. I love you, though. My scars prove that we're all really messed up. So I need you to know that when we're agreeing with God on this issue, you might find yourself, oh, well, I'm guilty. Okay, 
We're guilty of a lot of things. Jesus paid our penalty for them all. See, this is what we do. We feel guilt in our life. And so we go, oh, well, God, uh, that sin doesn't count. So next, uh, he, he created marriage. When he created male and female, he then created marriage. Again, between a man and a woman. And it's for one man, one woman, for one lifetime. And he created sex to be man and a woman. The married couple. And you're like, there's another level of guilt and shame being added on to the United States of America. We've rebelled in all of these areas so massively that we would rather rewrite the Bible than to submit to them and admit we are guilty, receive forgiveness of our sins, and have eternal life and a new hope and a new future and God's blessing on us. These are totally closed-handed issues for Christians. Do Christians rebel against God in these areas? Absolutely. Do Christians struggle in these areas? Absolutely. But does God love us and want to, want to change us and want to transform us in these areas? Absolutely. And that's Paul's appeal. He's appealing to them. I'm begging you, I'm begging you, church, be of the same mind and judgment according to God's word. So many Christians are divided here. So many Christians are divided here. Famously said, right, that uh, uh, united we stand, but divided we fall. Look at the church. How, how, how much has the church fallen because of the division? The church in Corinth is dividing. They're crumbling. Church in America, crumbling. Why? Because we can't agree on the things that God has made clear. Number five, sin. Sin. Sin is anything, any rebellion against God. Thought, word, or deed. Anything where we violate what God has commanded, he's told us to do, if you don't do it, that's sin. If you do what he's commanded you not to do, that's sin. You think uh, anything that, that, that God has uh, told us not to think about, yeah, sin. Yeah, the point is, is we're all sinners. By nature and choice, guilty. We inherited a sin nature from our father, Adam. Inherited it. Great gift, Dad, right? You know, you're like, man, bummer. Like, yes, but praise God, we, we inherited another gift, eternal life through Jesus. We inherit, and sin comes through Adam, but salvation comes through Jesus. Sin is the problem. Sin is what separates us from God. Continual rebellion, walking in sin, makes us continually thinking, man, we should do things differently than God. Christ redeeming us, saving us from, from our sin, saving us from the wrath of God, transforming us, renewing our mind, transforming us from one degree of glory to the next. When he's, he's doing that, what he's doing is reshaping us to where we no longer choose sin as much or, or sin supremely, but we choose God more often, more frequently because we love him. We, we are captivated by him. We've tasted and seen God's goodness is better than anything in this world. Some people want to argue that sin isn't a problem. Humans are just good people. All people are just good people. Well, the Bible teaches us in Romans 5 that we're children of wrath. Ephesians 2 teaches us that we're destined for death. These are just the, the scriptures testify over and over that we are, are, are uh, we're sinners by nature and choice and we need to be saved. So number six, close-handed issue. Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, and his return. This is a glor- the glorious news. And this is indeed a closed-hand issue. Jesus, the God-man, God-made flesh, paid the penalty on the cross, died in your place for your sins, past sin, present sin, future sin, received the, the, the just penalty due sinners, and then after being killed on the cross, was three days raised from the dead. After being dead for three days, God the Father 
caused him to have victory over the cross, proving that one, he was God, proving that two, he was sinless, and proving three, that he conquered our biggest enemy, sin, death, and the grave. And therefore, we now can have life. We have life. We can have eternal life. Salvation can now be received through faith in Jesus. Sins, your debt cleared, sins forgiven. This is a close-handed issue, and we rejoice in this. It has been done. Jesus died in your place for your sins. He's risen from the dead victorious. And guess what? He's returning. He's coming back again. It's close-handed issues. And we can argue on when he's coming back, but he's coming back. He is coming back. So this grace, this mercy that Jesus has given us through his life, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, is something you cannot, you cannot earn, but simply must receive. And when Jesus returns back, when he comes back, he's going to judge the, the living and the dead. Then those who have received this gift of eternal life in the person and work of Jesus through his work on the cross, if we put our faith in him, when he comes back, you will enter into reward, commendation, set apart, rejoicing with Jesus forever in the new heavens and the new earth. If you reject Jesus and his salvation, if you reject it, then you will, ex- you will experience eternally the punishment that Jesus received on your behalf. But you rejected it, so it's no longer applied to your account. Sinners, those who, who reject Jesus, will experience judgment, while those who have, who have placed their faith in Jesus, not on their own merit, receive the free gift of salvation, reward. Not reward because they earned something, but reward because Jesus earned it on their behalf. Closed-handed issue. Number seven. The church. Some, some will be like, oh, that, how is that close-handed issue? Well, Paul's writing to a church in Corinth. A church in Corinth. Kind of close-handed on this. He's writing to a church, implying that there's churches. Implying that there's a local expressions of, of a church. Namely, this one here in Corinth. So we believe that Jesus has saved a universal church. All those who call on the name of Jesus across the world. We're unified with people in Africa, Asia, you know, Indonesia, wherever. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus has salvation, part of what's called the universal church, the old church. But then there's local expressions of that universal church, like here in Corinth and like our church. And so both are, are, are spoken to in the scriptures and both exist in the scriptures and both consist of believers organizing themselves, especially the local church. We see that the believers in the church are to organize themselves under biblical church leadership for Specific things. The Bible teaches us through preaching, through, through singing, through worship, through the observance of the Lord's Supper and baptism. The practice of church discipline. We're to scatter throughout the city after we gather on, on the Lord's Day to, to be missionaries. Everything we do here is taken from the scriptures. And so this is what we're to be united around. These are the close-handed issues. We will divide over these things. And I know he's, Paul's appealing that they not divide. But what is he saying? You need to agree here. If you don't agree here, there will be division. Now, what are some open-handed issues? Tongues. Paul's going to talk about that as we get in. We won't get to tongues until, I think, uh, the, the summer or just after the summer, um, in the fall of this year. But tongues, supernatural gifts, you, can, you should have convictions on these. But you don't say, man, the guy who's speaking in tongues, the guy that doesn't think tongues exist... That's not, a, that's, not a, that's not a close-handed issue. Now, many churches make it. 
Some will say if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. Some will say if you speak in tongues, you're demonic. Both are wrong. Paul's going to write to this. He's going to explain some of these open-handed issues that there's grace and we got to understand these things. Also, eschatology. That's another open-handed issue. What does that big word mean? It means when is Jesus coming back? Man, some guys have charts. Some people have graphs. Some people have like really, really, really strong convictions. That's great. Have convictions on eschatology. When does Jesus return? Is it, it, but do not divide over it. We don't divide over that. We can disagree on, over it and we can have heated conversations. But we're, at the end of the day, we're brothers and sisters. Tell you my, my view, Jesus is coming back. And I know I'm right on that one. Uh, number, number three, uh, as far as uh, open-handed issues. Uh, the figurative or literal seven-day creation. Did God, we believe God created the world in seven days, but was it, uh, does a day mean a day or did it mean a thousand years? What does it mean? Literal, figurative, seven-day creation. You can disagree on that and still be Christian. Baptism, babies or adults. You should have convictions over these, but we don't divide over these things. That we're still Christians in regards to the, these things. What about education? How do you raise your kids? Homeschool, public school, you know, other school, you know, hybrid school. What is it? There's Christian freedom here. Again, I don't believe you should do it willy-nilly, but you should have a conviction about how you're going to educate your children. But it is an open-handed issue. So you shouldn't be splitting churches over, oh, we're the homeschool church, and so no one else can come but if they homeschool. Why people do that though? I homeschool my kids, and I agree. Homeschool kids, homeschool families are weird, mainly because people are weird. And it's because of things like that where they're like, "Only this is all we're doing. If you don't do it, then you know there's a special place in hell for you." Like, no, like there are other options, and sometimes necessary depending on certain circumstances and, and where you're at. But the point is, parents' job is to raise their kids in the ways of the Lord. That's what the scriptures say. That is a close-handed issue. But how you do it, there's some grace there. Music style. This is, a, this is a great one. People divide churches all the time over this one. This might be the number one American you know, church split is the, what kind of drums and guitar do they have? That is the, that's a big one. Is it an organ? What piano do we have? How, how, does the singer, is his pants tight or, or loose? Or, you know, what's going on here? Is it, he's got Nikes or, you know, something else. What is it? We, we get so bent out of shape about worship music. We get so bent out of shape about style. Some days, if you notice recently, what we had uh, one person singing. Uh, we had a different person singing. Then we had two people singing. We'll have a band one day. We'll have drums sometimes. We don't care what your preferences are. We care about what's the, what, what the words we sing are. We really do. And so this is not something you divide the church over, music style. Like, well, it's hard to worship God. Well, then work hard to worship God. Yes, I'm saying that. Like, sometimes it's probably hard to worship God when I'm preaching, too. And thank you for sitting around and doing that. But, you, you know, like, I need you to understand, when we pick songs, and, and we were talk, uh, Hunter and I were talking this week about this, and it, he, we asked the question, what if, if we only, if, if our congregation only heard, the only, they, I didn't preach, and all they heard were the songs we sung on Sunday. After 365 days, after one year, 52 weeks of gathering, what would our church know about God? And so we want, through the singing, through the lyrics, you to know more about the God who made you. That's, and so we'll put different styles to it. If you notice, the, the words pretty much stay the same. The songs kind of stay the same. It's a part of teaching. 
Right? You know more about song lyrics than anything I've ever said. Ain't no one quoting me. But you quote songs. Some of you don't know lyrics very well, and that's okay. We put them on the screen. But the point is so that you know the lyric so you can worship the God behind the lyric. Lastly, we're, we're cruising along on this first point along uh, pretty good, good ways. Denominations, Bible translations, stuff like Calvinism, Arminianism, open-handed issues shouldn't divide a church over it. All right, that's where we're at. Open-handed issues, you keep them open-handed. Don't fight over it. You can argue with your friends. You can, you can debate, but, but don't divide. That means also don't divide with churches in the city that may dis- differ with us stylistically how we do things. Do they, do they hold to the close-handed things? If they don't hold to the close-handed things, that's one thing. I had the honor and privilege to speak this week at a, at a, at a conference by at a, this raging Pentecostal church. We had some preachers that I was like, man, never heard that before. Uh, it was wild. And some, but, but here's the point. All the guys preaching in, 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 in the church that I got invited to, they love Jesus. They are centered around the, the doctrinal convictions that are close-handed, and they will die for those. They're bold preachers. They're unashamed of the gospel. And I'm glad to rally behind them. And so, in addition to appealing to uh, unity, Paul says they need to appeal to maturity. And so everything else is going to flow from appeal, uh, the, the appeal to unity in God's word. So now, what does he say? For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. And so Chloe is, is a concerned church member. Unknown who she is, but she has some people, maybe friends, business associates, family members, her household. They're, they're writing to the Apostle Paul saying, things are not going well at the church in Corinth. So Paul's saying, hey, Chloe told on you. Um, man, I feel bad for Chloe's people. Uh, they, they found out you're quarreling among you, my, my brothers. And what I mean by this is each of you says, I, I follow Apollos. I follow, or sorry, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas, which also is Peter. Um, and I follow Christ. I got, we got teams in this church. Guys, I, I was there 18 month, months. I established this church. I left. And now you got T-shirts for the other team. Some of you, you have the Paul guys. You know, it's their favorite preacher. He's like, man, Paul was here. It, it, this is very similar to our day. Like, they, they in, also in Corinth had uh, like social commentaries and like, like podcasts like we have, people talking about news, social, social environments, YouTube channels. I mean, obviously it wasn't those things, but they had those particular similar things in which they had their favorites, favorite orators, favorite uh, speaker who would come into the city, favorite philosopher. They had those. It's kind of like your favorite, you know, podcast, your favorite YouTube channel, all those things. But what ends up happening is they start, they take that, envi- they take that uh, favoritism and then they apply it to the preachers. Just like we do in our day, we have, you know, I, I've heard people, they're like, man, I go to this church, this mega church, but I only show up when the main guy preaches. I'm like, who are you? Like, what? The guy I talked to one time went to, uh, uh, you know, uh, a famous pastor's church in town, and that guy wasn't preaching. They're like real bummed about it. I'm like, they, did they talk about the guy Jesus? Because if they did, it was awesome. If they didn't, you should be bummed. Who cares about the clown on the stage? It, and I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be the clown as well. Like, it, it, who, who cares? It's not about that guy. It's about Jesus. So he says, some follow Paul. So these are like loyal guys to the Apostle Paul. So Paul leaves. He's planted. You know, they start picking teams. Apollos, Peter. And then these guys are like, oh, no, I'm with Paul. See, I'm a loyal guy. I'm loyal to the, the, the church planter. I'm loyal to this. I have, like, respect. I'm actually kind of scared of Paul. We're on Team Paul. We got shirts. Team Paul. I follow Paul. Like, this is wild. They're walking around going, I follow Paul. Like, 
that's my, that's my crew. We follow, it's like, you know, gang life or something. I don't know, like we, in the church, they have like separation. I follow Paul, and you have a, I follow Apollos. Apollos was a great preacher, great communicator. Uh, he, he, was, he, was, he was not very deep though, uh, and sometimes not very accurate. Uh, we see in Acts 18, he preached, he didn't, he didn't say anything heretical, but uh, he had, some of the church leaders had to pull him over after he preached and, and teach him a little more. He had to get some more discipleship. But Team Apollos, that's the other team. Team Cephas or Peter. Peter is the appointed leader by Jesus. So some are like, well, Paul, I know he got knocked off his horse. He met Jesus. You know, Apollos is young and, you know, he's, he's a really good, good preacher. Uh, but, you know, Peter, that guy, he's, he grew a mega church in one day. One sermon, thousands of people got saved. Where were that guy? Where were that guy? And then some are like, no, I follow Christ. Team Jesus here. No, not Team Paul, not Team Apollos, Cephas. I know, good guy, but Jesus. These are these weirdos that are super spiritual. That's who they are. They're like, ah, no authority, just Jesus. I don't go to church. I really don't need to, I don't really go every week. I don't really care. I'm just, I read my Bible, Jesus. These are people who are acting spiritual on the outside. Because Paul, he says, he's not saying, oh, there's some Christians, some good guys who are following Christ. What he's saying is like they made a team Jesus as if Paul, Apollos, and Cephas were against team Jesus. And so Paul, Apollos, and Peter, they're not divided. They're united. They're on the same team. They're on Jesus' team. But apparently these folks were really excited about, you know, who their team was and who baptized them. So Paul says it this way. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so... Uh, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? No. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except, okay, except for a few people, uh, Cyprus, Gaius, and, and so that no one may say you're baptized in my name. He wrote it and he goes, oh wait. I did baptize also the household of uh, Stephanus. Uh, beyond that, I don't, He's like, I got to make it clear. I don't know who I baptized here. Uh, Beyond that, I just don't know whether I baptized anyone else. But the point is, it's not baptism. Like, I I baptized a few people, okay? But I didn't come here to baptize, but I did a few. So apparently, they were uniting their team based on who baptized them. They're like, Deacon Dan, no way. I don't want him to baptize me. I need Paul. I need Apollos. Cephas, I need him to put water on me. That's weird. This is weird. Taking a bath in public and you're like, who's the guy that gets to put me under the water? That's my team. Weird. It's not about Paul. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Cephas. It's about baptism is saying, I follow Jesus. Jesus died, I died. Jesus was buried, I'm buried. Jesus has been risen, I'm risen. Jesus gave me eternal life, so I'll walk in the, eternal, in the newness of his life. That's what baptism is. This petty, status-chasing, weird stuff that's going on here in Corinth. Picking their favorite, I get the favorite preacher thing, kind of like you pick your favorite sports team. That idea is not far-fetched, but it is immature. It is immature, and immaturity runs rampant in our nation and in church culture. There's this appeal to grow up here. Stop doing that. Stop picking teams. Stop finding your favorite preacher and only listening to them. Stop 
declaring your status. Because this is what people do when they do this. And you see, you see it all the time. Especially when they pick a, a famous pastor and like, yeah, that's my guy. But when that guy, you find out he's a human and he sins, they go, I can't follow Jesus anymore because I've been following this guy and found out he's, he, he's a hypocrite and he, he lied and uh, he needs grace. And I just, I just can't handle that. They leave the faith because a Christian sinned. You don't follow, you follow Jesus. It blows my mind when people are like, my faith is crushed because my favorite preacher is no longer preaching anymore. Was your faith built on that preacher? It might be. That's the problem Paul is saying here. Don't put your faith in Paul. Don't put your faith in Apollos. Don't put your faith in, in, in Cephas. Don't put your faith in anyone other than Jesus. So this is what he ends with, the appeal for preaching. He's going to get pumped here. He says in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize. I know I baptize a few people. Baptism's great. You should do it. Those who follow Jesus, let's do it. Let's get some baptisms going. But God called me. Christ sent me to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. He, didn't, he, he, he called me. He sent me. Jesus positioned me to preach to preach the gospel. We must never, ever stop preaching the good news of the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the only thing that has the power to save. Preaching in our day, in our land, has, has turned into these, I've literally heard these quotes of people like these TED Talk style, winsome, don't offend anyone, passive preaching. That's not what it is. I reject that. If you didn't notice, I reject that. Preaching, as the scriptures declare, is to be prophetic. Meaning, it's not to tell future events. It's to say, this is what God says. Te yes, it has elements of teaching so that there can be explanation. But the preacher's job is to come up and say, hey, this is what God says. Repent and turn and trust, agree with and believe God. And then the, the, the Spirit of God, his job is to cut the, the, the individuals who hear it to the heart to bring about true life and true repentance. This is what we see with Peter in the first sermon. He looks at the crowd and says, you killed Jesus. They're like, yeah, we'll kill you too. He's like, you killed Jesus. And he, and he goes on and he labors and he, he preaches. And all of a sudden they get cut to the heart. The Spirit of God convicts them. They get saved. And so the Old Testament, the prophets, what did they do? They, they herald the, the word of God. They told, this is what God said. And guess what happened to a lot of them? They got killed. John the Baptist, prophet as well, heralding, preparing the way for Jesus. Repent, believe in Jesus. Guess what? Killed. Jesus himself preached first sermon. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Three years later, killed. The apostles the guys who wrote the Bible, after, after Jesus rose from the dead, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They went out preaching. All but one of them killed. Another guy got thrown on an island, you know, boiled alive, some crazy things too. And when they told the apostles to stop preaching, he told, they told them to stop preaching. The government came in and said, no more preaching Jesus. What did they do? Oh, we're going to preach more. We're going to preach louder. We're going we're gonna to annoy you with preaching. That's my strategy. That's what we do. Preachers are a spectacle. 
The watching world looks at it and they, they, they should mock them and they should be offended or you're not doing it right. That's my opinion. That's what we see in the scriptures. All the preachers in the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New who preached ended up being considered a spectacle, an outrage. Uh, the society did not accept them, did not like them, mocked them, said they were narrow-minded, bigoted, uninformed, uneducated, losers. They didn't like them. And they offended people, not because they were trying to, but because God's word does offend people. They were mocked. They were reviled. They, they, they were put to death. They were persecuted. Fast forward all the way to the Great Reformation when uh, uh, Martin Luther, he says it this way, preach in such a way that the people who hear you either hate their sin and repent of it, or they hate you. Preachers will be hated. And so that's why not many people are called to preach. That's why not many people want to do it. It's a high-risk, high-reward job. Now, teaching is different. There's office of, of the church where you're teaching, equipping, ministry. That's good. But the preacher needs to have the backbone to stand up like the Apostle Paul and say, I don't care what you think. This is what God's word says. Put me in prison. I'll preach louder. His last two years in prison, he did more ministry in prison than he did on, and on house arrest than he did at other points in his ministry. He would not stop. They literally had to kill him in order to shut his mouth. So he's writing to this church and he's saying, man, I did not come to baptize, though baptism is a thing and we should do it. I came to preach the gospel. And he says, not with words of eloquent speech or with eloquent words. Some of you will say, ow, sounds like that method of preaching, not going to reach people. Sounds like people, not going to want to hear it. Sounds just like not a good strategy. Well, you're right. Probably isn't, but it's God's strategy. It is. Why? Because, you know, God uses the foolish things to shame the wise. So God uses fools like me to save people. God uses fools who believe that there was a, a, our Savior was born of a virgin, grew up sinless, died on the cross in our place for our sins, after being dead was risen and victorious. The whole thing sounds crazy. The whole thing does. The whole thing means that you need God to intervene and, and change your heart to cause you to believe that to be true and, and cling to that for salvation. Romans 1.16 says that this gospel, the very thing that, you know, people are like, I don't know if that's going to work, is, says that it's the exact thing that works. Paul says that it is the gospel, the person and work of Jesus that has the power of God for salvation. He says that the Holy Spirit blesses the preaching of the gospel. You're like, that does it. how does that work? It's miraculous. I don't know. God does it. And he does it in such a way that no one can get the credit. The preacher doesn't get the credit. The, 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 the minister doesn't get the credit. No one, the, the evangelist doesn't get the credit. No one gets the credit. And I love it. Some of you, that's your story here. You're like, I came in here. I was yelling all the time. I hated everything he said. I wouldn't believe him. I even vowed I would not believe. And one day I became a Christian. And dang it, God saved me. I've heard some of you have told me that. Al, it wasn't because of you. It was because of God. I'm like, yes, that's it. That's how, that's how it's, it's, it's what it says. That's what we do. We preach. And so we will, this appeal from the Apostle Paul, he's like, I'm not coming to baptize. I'm, not, I'm coming to straight some things out. But when I came, I preached the gospel. And I preached it not with eloquent wisdom, but I, I, I preached it showing the cross. Jesus Christ on the cross, that's the power to save. I didn't water it down. I didn't change things to fit the cultural, you know, climate of the area. I just heralded the gospel. 
If, and because I believed it had the power to save, and it did. If I would have done it another way, I would have emptied the gospel, emptied the cross of its power, and I will not do that. It works. It works. And so, we as a church, we'll never stop preaching Jesus. We'll never stop obeying Jesus. We will never stop calling others to do the same. This is where we're united. We must be united here. And so, as a church that is united, like Jesus declares us to be and wants us to be in John 17, that we'd be one as he and the Father are one. We're going to respond in a posture of unity. We're going to sing, and when we sing, we're going to sing together because we are one. I want you to see it's more than just singing in the same room. You're singing together. Why? Because you're united under Christ. You're going to go take communion together, and it's all been broken out of one loaf of bread and one uh, uh, you know, thing of juice. Why? Because we're united. We're one. You may all eat individual pieces, but it's a symbol and a reminder that in Christ that we are made one. We're going to give, have an opportunity to respond in giving. The church has one account where we give and do ministry together. Why? Because we are one. The point of this sermon, the point of this preaching of the Apostle Paul to this church, and he would not stop, is that it's all about Jesus, worshiping Jesus, being united around Jesus, obeying Jesus, and submitting to Jesus, submitting to his word, his will, and his ways. And as we do that, as we submit to him there, we are one, even as he and the Father are one. Don't deviate from Jesus. Don't deviate from his word. Submit to him. And as we respond, let's celebrate. Lord Jesus, would you bless these men and women? Would, would we be a church that is so united? May we be a mature church. Man, cause us to grow up and act like mature believers. May we be united around the, 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 the closed-handed issues and be gracious to the open-handed issues. May we be serious, Jesus, about theological unity. May we be serious about relational unity. May we be serious about missional unity, following you, Jesus, on your mission where we live, work, and play. And as we respond now, as we sing, as we take communion, may we celebrate knowing that we are one body, united in Christ, in whom we worship. Amen.